Africa, rise and shine. Africa, zora. Africa, amka na unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Onelin Zinzi, Asanda Mazaonyane, and Tami Kuza. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour, Africa is said to be making progress in women empowerment and the trial of former Ivorian president gets underway. In economics, Mexico will today launch a long-delayed tender for one of the largest infrastructure projects. And in sports news, Lucas Sotole sealed another wheelchair title for South Africa. But first up, the news with Onelin Sinzi. Thank you, Lulu. Former Cote d'Ivoire President Laurent Gbagbo and his co-accused former militia leader Chable Goudet say they should not be standing trial because there is no evidence against them. The two men have pleaded not guilty at the International Criminal Court in The Hague. Gbagbo is charged with war crimes and crimes against humanity. Hundreds of protesters gathered outside the ICC saying Gbagbo was trying to bring democracy to the country and should be released. Jack Parrock has more. Well, at the moment, the defence are saying that essentially they should not be stood trial here because of the um, there is a lack of evidence. There's been hundreds of protesters. They've been there all day protesting, saying that the two men should be released immediately. Many of them believe that Lauren Bagbo was actually trying to impose democracy in the country. This is a trial that's going to last three years or so. There's around 700 witnesses that will give evidence in this trial. The Somalia cabinet has agreed on a model for election later this year, calling the long-awaited decision an important milestone for the Horn of African nation. United Nations envoy for Somalia Michael Keating told the UN Security Council on Thursday that the decision this week was the culmination of almost six months of intense consultations. Keating was also stressed that Somalia's Islamic extremist insurgents, al-Shabaab, still remains a potent threat. Burundi's main opposition group has urged the international community and the African Union to approve plans to send an AU peacekeeping force to this strife-torn country. This despite President Pierre Nkurunziza's objections. Burundi has been in turmoil since April last year when Nkurunziza said he would stand for a third term, a move which left more than 100 people in the country dead and thousands displaced. The AU says it's determined to end the crisis in Burundi with a summit on Saturday due to vote on sending a 5,000-strong peacekeeping force. Nigeria's former highest-ranking Air Force officer has been arrested as part of an investigation into the alleged diversion of funds intended to fight Boko Haram. Former Chief of Air Staff Air Marshal Adesola Amisan is being interrogated in connection with the Amstel scandal. The statement from President Muhammadu Buhari's office on January 15th said the EFCC probe into alleged weapons procurement fraud has been widened to include 17 former or serving high-ranking officers 
says Buhari has embarked on a wide-ranging crackdown on endemic graft since taking office last year, leading to a slew of arrests and charges. And finally, Basuti nationals who wish to continue to work, study or conduct business in South Africa need to be documented. That's according to South Africa's Home Affairs Minister Malusi Gigaba. About 500,000 Lesotho nationals live in South Africa and Gigaba has urged those with fake documents to surrender them. Application dates have been extended. Online applications will be open on March the 1st and in-person applications on March the 7th. Gigaba says certain documents will be needed for an application to be successful. In order to qualify, you need to have a valid Lesotho passport, police clearance, recent, be either employed or studying or conducting business, and you must be able to prove that. Channel African News, I am Onelin Sinti. Thank you, Onele. It's 8.05 Central African Time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa. Our top story, resource mobilization and integration will be the key focus of the African Peer Review Mechanism meeting taking place on the sidelines of the 26th Ordinary Session of the Assembly of the U- African Assembly of the Union taking place in the Ethiopian capital, Addis Ababa, later today. Several heads of state are expected to attend the 24th African Peer Review Forum. The APRM is a pan-African initiative to improve good governance and promote socio-economic development. The objective of the African peer review mechanism launched in 2002 is to promote the adoption of policies, standards and best practices that enhance political stability, economic growth and sustainable development. 35 African countries are currently members of the APRM. The APRM forum has completed peer reviews in 17 countries. Djibouti is the 18th country to be peer-reviewed at the special summit of the heads of state and government participating in the APRM forum scheduled for today. Speaking ahead of the meeting, Mwangi Kainjuri, secretary of the APRM Focal Point Committee, announced that countries will be requested to increase their annual contribution of $100,000. Tomorrow's meeting will more be over the real concentration will be issues of resource and also integration. Because as much as we would like to do a good job without resources, we cannot be able to go far. However, it's very encouraging in today's meeting that we realize that uh, the resource mobilization, the trade is going up, that the countries are meeting their obligations. And uh, also the question on whether we are going to make additional funds, yes, the countries will be requested to make additional uh, contribution what they have been contributing. At the last AU summit in Santon, north of Johannesburg, South Africa, Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta was elected to head the African Peer Review Forum, the committee of leaders representing countries that have joined the APRM. Speaking through an interpreter, chairperson of the APR panel and chair of the APRM Focal Point Committee, Dr. Mustafa Magideche, commended President Kenyatta's revival of the mechanism. President of the Republic of Kenya, he put in place a concept 
and that is uh, the renaissance of uh, the APRM. Despite uh, the difficulties that our mechanism went through, the renaissance is taking shape under the leadership of His Excellency, the Kenyan President. From there, we can say that we have uh, resumed the tradition and the mission that we have in place, that is having uh, governing governance within African countries. Djibouti, your neighbor, was evaluated. And this one is uh, on the agenda of the uh, heads of state. He says four evaluation processes are scheduled to take place this year. Now for capacity building, operationally speaking, there is a preparation of four evaluation processes which are going to be done in the year 2016. This review for Chad, Senegal. That is for the first semester. The second one we have Sudan and Cote d'Ivoire. I should uh, recall that our exercise of evaluation is not a technical one. It is inclusive and it involves civil society on our continent. This is why I wish to say that we are at a stage for capacity building. African Union Chairman and Zimbabwean President Robert Mugabe will officially open the Heads of State and Government Summit on Saturday with proceedings formally closing on Sunday. And in those 48 hours, African leaders are expected to debate several key issues relating to women's empowerment, peace and stability, food security, infrastructure development and the post-2015 development agenda, amongst other issues. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Gandla Masangu in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Africa is making progress in women empowerment with African Union member states slowly bringing more women on board in traditionally male-dominated sectors. This is according to the AU Commission for Political Affairs. It is celebrating that the continent is leading the world on women parliamentarians. It has 37 countries with the highest number of women MPs. Continental body dedicated 2016 to women's empowerment and this year the theme is the year of human rights with a special focus on the rights of women. Debo Mukobo reports from the Ethiopian capital Addis Ababa. Pushing ahead with gender parity and the African Union started at its headquarters. Chairperson of the AU Commission, Dr. Nkosa Sanatlamenezuma, has implemented a 50-50 representation with five of its ten commissioners now women. And slowly more women are being included. Head of the African Union Commission for Political Affairs, Dr. Aisha Abdullahi. The African Union currently has the highest number of women in peacekeeping forces and the highest number of women in political decision-making bodies globally. It's gratifying to indicate here that... There are currently 37 countries in the world that have at least 30% women representation in parliament. Excellencies, 16 of these countries are in Africa. Rwanda is currently the leading country with the highest number of women in parliament worldwide. Dr. Abdullahi also praised the Sadek region. She commended countries that have established ministries and parastatals to promote and protect women's rights. Some of the above positive developments on gender transformation had also been replicated at the sub-regional level, leading to the evolution of policies such as the SADC Women's Rights Protocol. Furthermore, there are impressive numbers of the African Union member states that have towed the above continental and sub-regional pragmatic parts, South Africa, 
Rwanda, Namibia, Mauritius, Malawi, Lesotho, Botswana, Zimbabwe, Cape Verde, and Madagascar are doing pretty well and making remarkable progress in terms of respect for women's rights. Women's access to land and credit facilities, promotion of equal access to education for both the male and the female child. At the political front, in terms of elected representation, our continent is again taking the lead. She says the continent can only achieve the full empowerment of women if countries implement the AU members' policies and programs on gender equality and economic development of women. To achieve gender equality and women's empowerment in the implementation of the SDGs and the Agenda 2063, the following specific actions are urgently needed. Ratification, domestication, and effective implementation of the African Union, original economic communities, normative and policy instruments on human rights and women's rights in particular, by member states, respect for the rule of law and democratic governance, respect for the decisions of all the African Union institutions with mandate on human rights, including the African Court on Human and People's Rights, the enrollment of girls in schools, decent and gainful employment for both African men and women, equal participation of men and women in political leadership and decision-making. Meanwhile, President Jacob Zuma has arrived in Addis Ababa for the AU summit, which officially starts on Friday. The president, as the head of infrastructure development in the continent, will address the 34th session of the NEPAT Heads of State and Government meeting tomorrow ahead of the summit. Zimbabwean President and outgoing AU Chairperson Robert Mugabe is also expected to address the gathering. I am Tebumokobadi Sababa in Ethiopia. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kulitranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe. This is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa. This is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.14 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequencies 7230 kilohertz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kilohertz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. Ivory Coast ex-president Laurent Gbagbo has denied charges of war crimes and crimes against humanity as his landmark trial began at the International Criminal Court. The charges relate to the country's civil conflict that erupted after Bagbo lost elections in 2010. He is the first ex-head of state to stand trial at the ICC in The Hague. Bagbo and ex-militia leader Charles Blair Godet both deny murder, rape, attempted murder and persecution. Earlier on, we spoke to Kerry Comer, the permanent representative to the International Criminal Court, for the International Federation for Human Rights, based in The Hague, Netherlands. 
Absolutely. The Rome Statute, which governs the International Criminal Court, allows for joinders of trials when the accused persons face uh, similar charges that would actually warrant one single joint trial without suffering any serious prejudice by not having their own individual charges. What are the charges against former President Lohok Bakpo? So Laurent Bagbo is facing four counts of crimes against humanity, uh, specifically murder, rape, other inhumane acts or in the alternative attempted murder, and also persecution. These crimes are related to different attacks following the 2010 elections, uh, including um, after a pro-Watara march, women's demonstration in Abobo, also the shelling of densely populated areas. And could you just tell us about charges against um, Charles Blairgoat? So Charles Blairgoat is uh, charged with uh, the same counts. So again, murder, rape, other inhumane acts, and persecution. Although the modes of his liability, his role in these crimes, is slightly different uh, as a youth leader and minister of youth from the former president, Bagbo. Could you tell us what is meant by confirmation of charges as this still has to be done? Well, no, the confirmation of charges occurred in 2014. So okay. the charges have been confirmed against both accused, meaning that there's a substantial reason to believe that these crimes occurred for the trial to open. The trial actually opened. We're in the opening statement of the prosecution. And in the following days, we should hear the opening statement of the legal representative for victims and, of course, of the defense. And do you think that this may prove to be the most important trial in the ICC's history, seeing as Bagbo is the first former head of state who is standing trial at the ICC? It's certainly a very important case, just as you mentioned. To actually have a former head of state on trial for crimes that were allegedly committed during or just after uh, his time in power, after 10 years of being president, is truly monumental. As you know, there are actually very few cases in the international realm where uh, former heads of state have been tried for crimes against humanity or war crimes. And victims, where are they? Are they participating in this trial? Yes, there's a huge interest from victims, specifically in this trial, but then in the wider situation in Cote d'Ivoire. As we know, right now, it's only this case moving forward um, of crimes allegedly committed by Bagbo and pro-Bagbo forces. But So in this specific case, we have 726 victims that have been granted the right to participate in the trial, and they're being represented by a common legal representative um, here at the ICC, um, which means they have the opportunity to present their views and perspectives throughout the trial. Maybe explain what actually happened that led to those gross violations that took place in Ivory Coast at that particular time. Yeah, absolutely. It's certainly a, a long story, one which um, can't be gone into detail, I think, at this moment. But Laurent Gbagbo was president for 10 years, from 2000 to 2010. And really, his entire presidency was characterized by tumult and violence. The first time civil war erupted uh, in his presidency was actually in 2002. And it, and it really formed 
stronger, long-standing ethnic divisions in Ivory Coast. Now, this civil war began uh, to dissipate through a disarmament in 2007, but the situation remained tense. So in 2010, when Alisan Ouattara was declared uh, by, you know, UN-certified elections to be victorious in the presidential election, thereby deposing President Bagbo, these tensions overflowed again and really simmered back into a full-fledged civil war. Both Bagbo and Ouattara were claiming victory in the elections, and growing violence between the two political groups erupted with alleged attacks by armed forces on on both sides, uh, really beginning in early 2011. And from that, are Bagbo and Charles Blagode the only two people that are standing trial for this? So at this point, that's the only trial that's open here at the ICC. However, Laurent Bagbo's wife, Simone Bagbo, also has a warrant for her arrest. Uh, she has been convicted in Côte d'Ivoire, in Ivory Coast, for different charges. On that account, the current government of Ivory Coast has refused to surrender her to the ICC. However, there is an ongoing investigation by the International Criminal Court into alleged crimes committed by the other side, uh, the pro-Watara forces. And the prosecutor has repeatedly reiterated, particularly in the past few days, that those investigations have intensified. So I think it's certainly possible that in the upcoming months or or years, we will certainly see a further trial uh, at the ICC or the other side of the violence. But there's no no guarantees, of course. You're saying the other side of the violence. Is Ouattara a part of that side? Because people could have supported him, but maybe he might get off. So is he part of that group that's being investigated? Well, the investigations are currently confidential. So we don't know exactly how far up a chain um, these investigations are going or who would have criminal responsibility at this point. That was Kerry Coma, permanent representative to the International Criminal Court for the International Federation for Human Rights, on the line speaking to Spumelele Zondi. South Africa's Minister of Mineral Resources, Musebenzi Zwane, says there's been a downward trend in the annual figures of fatalities in the mining industry over the past year. He released statistics on the health and safety performance of the mining industry for the 2015 calendar year in Pretoria. Zwane says this is, a massive pro- this is massive progress as compared to the two decades before 1994. Fanuel Schumer reports. The decrease in the number of fatalities in the mining sector is attributed to stakeholders' cooperation, the state's development and implementation of appropriate policies to cap the scourge could not be overlooked in this instance, Mineral Resources Minister Museven Zizwanim told the media in Pretoria. It is encouraging that 2015 saw the lowest ever fatalities recorded in the mining sector as compared to the previous year. This is encouraging an indication that our combined efforts as stakeholders are bearing fruit. A total of 77 fatalities were reported in 2015 compared to 84 reported for 2014 and this translates to an improvement of about 8% year on year. The minister went on to expand on the breakdown of the sector's fatalities as per commodity year-on-year as follows. Gold mines reported 33 in 2015 versus 44 in 2014, which marks an improvement of 25%. Platinum mines reported 22 
2015 versus 16 in 2014, a regression of 38%. Coal mines reported 5 in 2015 versus 9 in 2014, a significant improvement of 44%. Swami ravished the notion that the number could have reduced due to the number of job losses. He also alluded to occupational diseases as being another challenge that need more efforts to be eradicated. However, he said, general fall of the ground have in the past been major contributors to fatalities in the sector. However, there has been a reduction of 31% in the number of fatalities classified under general. From 29 fatalities in 2014 to 20 fatalities in 2015. Mine workers' unions expressed mixed reactions to the minister's presentation. National Secretary of the NUM, Eric Trilishanam, says although they welcome the decline in the number of fatalities in the mines, more still needs to be done. As National Kwanakwas, we welcome the decline in terms of the fatalities, but we are seriously concerned because people who are dying are breadwinners, are family leaders. Therefore, we can't have families without leaders and say we tape about that. We need the industry to pull up its socks so that zero harm is achieved at the end of the day. AMCO President Joseph Matunjam has expressed dissatisfaction on the issue, saying numbers cannot be used to justify human life. We disagree with these figures and the reason is very simple, is that these are not figures that are dying but are human beings. And secondly, there will be no drastic effort that is tangible that seeks to address health and safety in the minds because of this draconian or this new liberal reforms or legislation. For instance, the COIDA, Section 35, that says the family of the disease cannot lay charge or sue the company if their loved ones passed on. The minister says Impala Platinum Mine has been ordered to suspend operations at its Rustenberg shafts following the death of four mine workers last week. Fanuel Schumer in Pretoria. It's 8.25 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. The World Health Organization has reported that the Zika virus is spreading explosively in the Americas with cases in 23 countries and territories. The virus is spread by mosquitoes and the United Nations Agency suspects that it may be linked to certain deformities that affect newborns. WHO will convene an emergency meeting next week to determine whether it is of global concern. The Zika virus gets its name from the forest in Uganda where it was first isolated from a monkey in 1947. For years, only monkeys were affected, although it did cause a mild disease in humans. Diane Penn has a story. The Zika virus has been associated with a steep increase in the number of babies born with abnormally small heads, a condition known as microcephaly. It's also linked to cases of Guillain-Barre syndrome, which attacks the nervous system and could cause paralysis. Dr. Margaret Chan is the WHO Director General. A causal relationship between Zika virus infection and birth malformations and neurological syndromes has not yet been established. This is a very important point. But it is strongly suspected. The possible links, only recently suspected, have rapidly changed the risk profile of Zika 
from a mild threat to one of alarming proportions. The increased incidence of microcephaly is particularly alarming as it places a heartbreaking burden on families and communities. The Zika virus has been particularly evident in Brazil, which reported its first case in May 2015. WHO's regional office in the Americas, known as PAHO, has praised the country for its prompt reporting. Dr. Jabas Barbosa is director of the Brazilian Health Surveillance Agency, Anvisa. He says Brazil is investigating more than 3,500 cases of microcephaly. Research shows that women infected by Zika during pregnancy have more chances of giving birth to a baby born with microcephaly than pregnant women not affected by Zika. This does not occur in other situations. Evidence available today strongly suggests this hypothesis. The Brazilian Ministry of Health, PAHO and WHO are asking countries to put more effort in the fight against the mosquito that transmits the disease, Aedes aegypti. The World Health Organization has set this Monday, the 1st of February, as the date for its emergency committee meeting on the Zika virus. The UN agency later plans to convene expert groups to address what it sees as critical gaps in scientific knowledge about the virus's effects on fetuses, children and adults. WHO will also prioritize the development of vaccines and new means to control mosquito populations in addition to improving diagnostic tests. Deanne Penn, United Nations. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. For Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa, Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe. This is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa. This is Moki Kinzaka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Our headlines up next with Onelin Zinzi. Burundi's main opposition group urges the international community and the African Union to approve plans to send an AU peacekeeping force to the Strife-Ton country. Zanzibar's main opposition party to boycott election rerun. And the United States promises to tackle ISIS beyond Iraq and Syria, signaling an increased focus on Libya. Channel Africa News, I'm Onilin Sinsi. Thank you, Onele. 
A, Mexi- a Mexican research organization has named South Africa's city of Cape Town as one of the world's top 10 most dangerous cities for the second time in a row. Durban, Port Elizabeth and Johannesburg are rated 41, 42 and 47 respectively. The cities were ranked according to the number of homicides per 100,000 inhabitants. Tandiswamau reports. Under the theme Advancing Africa Together, Meetings Africa is designed to contribute to the growth of Africa's potential as the world's fastest and most sought-after business events destination. This year, for the first time ever, the event will host the European Cities Market Summer School, scheduled to take place just ahead of the conference. According to the study by Mexico's Citizen Council for Public Security and Justice, the city of Cape Town had just over 65 homicides by 100,000 residents last year. This gives the city the dubious honor of being among the top 10 most violent cities in the world. Devon is ranked at number 41, followed by the Nelson Mandela Bay at 42. Each one of them recorded about 40 violent deaths. Johannesburg ranked number 47 with just over 30 homicides. The study says drug trafficking, gang wars, political instability and poverty are some of the criteria for the listing. Venezuela's capital city of Caracas tops the list as the most dangerous city. Questions have been raised about the reliability of the study's methodology. Lizette Lancaster is from the Institute of Security Studies. The United Nations Office of Drugs and Crime have cautioned against studies like this because of the large geographic and, and, and data gaps. Also, crime is not equally distributed in all cities. So a study like this can really cause panic and drive away tourists while the study is not necessarily the most credible. Mayoral Committee Member for Safety in the city of Cape Town, J.P. Smith, has also rubbished the report. And then, of course, there's the problem with that the stats on which they're basing their statistics, aside from only reflecting parts of the planet, are inaccurate. The South African statistics, a lot of the NGOs and criminologists in South Africa who studied those stats and said those stats cannot be accurate. These Cape Town residents have expressed conflicting views about the study. Where I come from in South Plain, even to get work is tough. You're hearing gunshots outside and you're thinking, must you go to work or must you stay? I've been brought up here, I've been born here, so I'm still here and I don't think it's dangerous at all. Any major city, if you walk around like uh, you're a victim or you're going to be subjected to being robbed or something, that'll happen. But if you walk around confident, really safe, really nice. I don't think it's dangerous to live in in the city. No incidents ever since I've been here for three years. So for me, it's, it's a great place, nice environment, nice people, in fact. Most of the cities on the list are from Latin America. South African police have not been immediately available for comment. And that report by Tandi Swamawu. Tourism experts from around the African continent will converge in South Africa next month as the country hosts the 11th Annual Meetings Africa Conference. A three-day event showcases Africa's diverse offering of services and products. It also provides a platform for African associations and industry professionals to network and possibly partner to help transform the tourism and economic industry on the continent. This year, the conference covers, among others, topics aimed at improving South Africa's global competitiveness and showcase the most up-to-date African trends in the meetings industry. Komoto Mopulani reports. Under the theme Advancing Africa Together, Meetings Africa is designed to contribute to the growth of Africa's potential as the world's fastest and most sought-after business events destination. 
This year, for the first time ever, the event will host the European Cities Market Summer School, scheduled to take place just ahead of the conference. The school is a tailor-made course for partner organizations in the business events industry, such as convention bureaus, hotels and convention centers. South Africa has proven capacity and infrastructure to successfully host major international business events and meetings. Tourism experts say what differentiates the country from other global business events destinations is the rich cultural heritage, which many at times leaves impressions on business and leisure travelers. South African National Convention Bureau Chief Amanda Kosenklapo says South Africa as the continent's leading tourism and investment destination will boast a high number of international and regional buyers under one roof. For meetings Africa, we are still running with the theme, the strategic positioning, advancing Africa together. But our campaign this year is Think African. And it's to showcase the best of business event products and services that Africa has on offer. Meetings Africa provides that global access um, to exhibitors as they do not have to go to any other travel trade show. We will be hosting the first ever European City Marketing Summer School. And during this time, top global professionals will share knowledge and insight as well as latest business events trends in a bid to enhance more innovative ways of operating in a fiercely competitive global business events industry. South African Tourism Acting Chief Executive Officer Stembi Sodlamini speaks on how such events boost a country's economy. The business events industry is a great driver of economic development, as we all know. And South Africa's business event strategy is focused on building the knowledge economy of our country and accelerating its microeconomic benefits by attracting events uh, in six identified economic sectors. And the sectors are in manufacturing, the mining metals, business process outsourcing, creative industries, life sciences, and information and technology. We're number one meetings destination in Africa. And, and in the Middle East, we're number 32 globally, as recognized by uh, the ICA ranking. And we, we, we're leading, you know, from a continental point of view. What is important for us is how do we then lead the continental collaboration and partnerships to grow our own industry towards uh, uh, growing the continental capacity. Aspiring exhibitors at the conference are encouraged to register for the event well in time. For Channel Africa, I'm Kwamoto Mupulani in Johannesburg. Traditional healers from across South Africa this week gathered in the country's city of Johannesburg to discuss their future in healing. The two-day seminar discussed, among other things, the government's plans to regulate some 200,000 traditional healers, which have been met with some resistance. Although traditional healing has been in existence for centuries, the acknowledgement of its role in many health systems has been an uphill battle. From all this... Here's Pip Silemasego, the national coordinator of the Traditional Healers Organization. The outcome that has been set up for the seminar has all been achieved in that we are able to, to pull out from the delegates the input that has to go into the draft traditional health practitioner regulation. The other thing is that we have been able to receive a mandate from many healer organizations to lead a program of unity. And the other thing is that a number of healer organizations that attended the conference wanted to have a platform where they could come together, unite and speak with one voice and make sure that we put together programs that are going to be implemented and there's going to be this voice that is able to see to the implementation of most of the programs. Now, traditional medicine features in the lives of thousands of Africans every day. What are some of the stereotypes that exist for the traditional healers and traditional medicine? There's quite a lot of 
stereotypes. Among others is that we're having a government and politicians that simply do not care about traditional health practice. And the reason for them not caring about traditional health practice is precisely because largely government is funded by pharmaceutical companies and these pharmaceutical companies, they always see us as competitors. So definitely they're not happy to see the existence and rapid development of traditional medicine. So surely it's that among others. The other thing is that there is no funding that is dedicated to research and development that is led by healers themselves. Other than that, university do do research, but then we are saying it should not necessarily be universities do research on traditional medicine or traditional indigenous knowledge, but it should be universities with practitioners of knowledge as collaborators and co-principals in research. The other thing that we feel it's important that the country notes is that when you look at the legislation, including this one, you know, you, you can see how much the country is wanting to do things for us. But then the challenge is that you cannot do things for us without us being involved because if there's anything about us, it has to be said by us because we know what affects us the most. You do not want a situation where parliamentarians sit together and develop legislation for us without us being present or without proper research being conducted on our way of life. Like what is happening now, it's clearly clear to everyone that the traditional health practitioner regulations are regulations that have been put together by people that have no understanding whatsoever on our own way of life. They call us students, they call Amatwasa students, they call us Okobela as tutors, and we are neither any of those. So it demonstrates the level at which there's so much ignorance from people that actually wanting to be architects of legislation that has to do with us. And this is the reason and premise from which we are saying we are really rejecting this proposed regulation. Briefly take us through some of these regulations. Firstly, I need to say to you that they are very controversial. It's a set of regulations that are done by Western medicine for traditional medicine practitioners, by people that ultimately do not understand who we are. It's regulations that are very ambitious. Firstly, the one example that I can put before you is that it is regulations that are saying traditional health practitioners, they should make sure that any patient that we have should go and register in Pretoria at the council before that person actually go through Ugutuasa. They should first go to Pretoria, submit themselves and say, here I am as a Tuasa and I want to go and Tuasa with Coco Pepsi before Coco Pepsi can admit that patient. Really? Would you do that in Barakwana Hospital? Wherein a patient that is sick, terminally, goes to Pretoria to the Department of Health, registers themselves before they can actually be admitted in hospital. That has never happened, but you can see the level at which the legislatures themselves were ignorant in this. And then the second thing is that they are saying there should be an age limit of 18 years. In fact, you should be 18 years and above for you to be a healer. Now, you cannot say being a healer is something that you call, that you register to become, but instead it's a calling. A calling comes any time and at any age of your life. The only thing that they need to say is that if you are that young, you'd rather have to be accompanied by your mother or your father or whoever the guidance that signs documents on your behalf. Now they said a lot of things that really do not make so much sense. Now, do you think that the use of traditional medicine is under threat from culture change and modern society? It has nothing to do with modern society because whether you're modern or not modern, the important thing that you need to maintain is that you cannot divorce yourself from culture. That is why you cannot say, because now I'm a judge in a court somewhere, if I'm a Christian, I have to live out being Christian. I don't have to be Christian anymore. Meaning the culture, the Christian culture, you have to dismiss. No, you don't do that. You grow with your culture. In fact, the best developed people, they grow within their own cultures. 
There is no threat on culture. There is no threat on anything else. But the only threat that we are seeing is that it's threat from pharmaceutical companies that are putting a lot of money on government to make sure that they are at pains to see traditional medicine being developed. And they are putting lots of money on government so that government can bring in weird legislation. That is why the seminar resolved to say they have tasked us to investigate who is actually behind these regulations, which are very ambitious. Finally there, tell us about the significant contributions of traditional medicine to health in South Africa in recent years. Among others is that we have contributed immensely on Western medicine development. You know, if you look at 65% of drugs developed for cancer, 65% were developed from traditional medicine, and that is our knowledge of which we have never benefited economically from that knowledge. The other thing is that, look at what is happening. Traditional medicine is contributing close to $3 billion of, to the GDP of this country through the sales of African traditional medicine. That demonstrates you how much traditional medicine has contributed towards developing the many portfolios of government. And yet nothing comes back to traditional medicine to develop traditional medicine. We feel that it's high time that traditional medicine is given and accorded the right space and respect that it deserves. That was Pepsi Lemasego, National Coordinator of the Traditional Healers Organization in South Africa, speaking to Elizabeth Lidicha. It's 8.45 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. Our economics update up next with Asanda Mataunyane. Good morning. About 32,000 miners could lose their jobs in South Africa as lowering commodity prices are affecting production. Iron ore and platinum mines are the worst affected. Mining accounts for more than half of South Africa's exports and employs about half a million people. Minister of Mineral Resources in the country, Musebenzi Zwani. We have plans that we put together with uh, the stakeholders. Those plans will include, among others, reskilling of workers, cancelling, transferring workers from this mine that is a problem to other mines. Economists are urging South Africans to settle their debt as soon as possible. This comes after the Reserve Bank raised its benchmark repo rate by half a percentage point on Thursday. Reserve Bank Governor Leseja Kanyako says the outlook for inflation has deteriorated significantly even as economic growth slows. The rand whose decline over the past year helped to fuel price pressures rallied to a three-week high after the rate increase announcement. First National Bank CEO Jacques Silias says clearing debt should be consumers' first priority. Household debt service costs are obviously going to rise in this environment. So heavily indebted consumers are certainly going to feel more of the pinch. Ultimately, household consumption spending, particularly on your more durable goods, um, is going to come under further pressure. Unfortunately, that's not going to spell particularly good news for this year's growth outlook. I think the economy is going to be lucky if it can achieve anything between zero and half a percent growth this year. 
Global benchmark Brent crude f- futures have extended gains to put them back on track or for a weekly rise of over 6%, boosted by hopes of a deal among oil-producing countries to tackle a growing supply glut. Brent futures have jumped over 25% since their January low. Brent rose 31 cents a barrel after ending up 79 American cents. Brent futures rallied as much as 8% after Russia said on Thursday that OPEC's largest producer, Saudi Arabia, had proposed oil production cuts of up to 5% in what would be the first global deal in over a decade to help clear a glut of crude and prop up sinking prices. The People's Bank of China is going all out to pump short-term cash into the banking system to avoid any cash crunch ahead of the long Lunar New Year holiday, which falls in early February this year. The move might delay expected cuts in banks' required reserve ratios, which would add pressure on the yuan to depreciate. In a rare extraordinary operation, the bank has injected 15 billion U.S. dollars into the money money markets, bringing total net injections into the markets this week to $104 billion. Mexico is launching a long-delayed tender for one of the largest infrastructure projects under President Enrique Peña Nieto, a wholesale telecoms network that will cover most of the country. The project, which was meant to be launched by 2014, is part of a sweeping telecoms reform aimed at curbing the dominance of Carlos Slim's America Mobile and improving Mexico's low level of cell phone penetration and network coverage. It offers the winner cheap, high-quality spectrum. The government last year said it had expected a capital investment of around $7 billion U.S. billion in the project. Looking at the financial indicators, the U.S. dollar is trading at 16.32 to the South African Rand, 11.39 to the Botswana Pula, and 11.19 to the Zambian Kwacha. It's trading at 0.69 to the British Pound and 0.91 to the Euro. Looking at the commodities markets, gold is trading at $1,122 and platinum is at $878 an ounce, while the price of Brent crude oil is at $32.75 a barrel. Channel Africa Economics News, I'm Asanda Matsaunyani. Thank you, Asanda. A sports update up next with Tammy Kruza. Thanks for joining us once again. Let's start with football, where Rwanda's Amavubi will look to back a win as they clash against TRC in the 2016 CAF Africa Championship quarter final match that will be played on Saturday. The host to Rwanda will hope to keep their good record intact in the tournament as they finished as Group A winners with six points, having lost one and one two. The match is set to get underway at the Amahoro Stadium in Kigali on Saturday afternoon, and the kickoff of that match is at 3 p.m. Central African time. And back home, Kaiser Chiefs coach Steve Compella has described this weekend's Soto Derby as a must-win for them if they are to close the eight-point gap between them and the current log leaders, Mameludi Sundowns. Compella says that he goes into this game under pressure, having lost his first official derby as Chiefs coach. 
They are no different. The pressure is the same. The emotions are the same. The quality of the players is the same. The event is the same. It's just to go in focus and try win it, which is what we're going in for on Saturday. And in athletics, Commonwealth long jump silver medalist Zach Fisher is preparing for the World Indoor Championships in Portland in USA this March. The South African shares how he hopes to take Greg Rutherford's Olympic title in Rio. Firstly, I need to stay injury-free like throughout the year and need to have like a few good competitions before Rio, though. It's like important, I think I just need to go for like a good distance, just a good start of the season. And like my, the start of my European season needs to be good. Uh, if I can stay in the consistent 18 to 8.15 shape at the beginning, I'll be good by the time I get to Rio. The president of the International Olympic Committee, IOC, Thomas Bach, says that they are working closely with the World Health Organization, WHO, to protect athletes and spectators against Zika virus at this year's Olympic Games in Rio. Thomas Bach had a news conference in Greece on Thursday. The uh, virus issue that we are in in close uh, contact uh, uh, with uh, the World Health uh, Organization as uh, well as... uh, with uh, the uh, uh, organizing uh, committee and the Brazilian authorities. You may know uh, that uh, President Rousseff has uh, called uh, for a summit, uh, there is a South American summit in this respect, uh, that uh, now the health ministers of the region are meeting to address uh, this uh, issue. And in tennis, world champion Novak Djokovic foiled a staring fight back from Roger Federer to defeat the Swiss 6-1-6-2-3-6-6-3 at the Australian Open on Thursday and charge into the fifth consecutive Grand Slam final. The world number one will bid for a record six title in Melbourne Park and will meet the winner of second seed Endumari and 13 seed Milos Raonic, who play in the second semi-final on Friday. Chris Powers has more. For two sets, Federer was made to look like a novice. Djokovic played some outstanding tennis and on the few occasions he gave Federer the chance to go for a winner, Federer frequently overhit. Djokovic had a set point to lead 6-1, 6-1 after 45 minutes. Federer made it 54 minutes before Djokovic sealed his two sets lead, but Federer clawed his way back in the third. With the crowd going wild, Federer won the third set and early in the fourth it looked very even. But at 4-3, Djokovic made his charge. At 15-30, we had the point of the tournament. Federer crowning off some remarkable retrieving by hitting a winning backhand down the line. It was magnificent, but it proved to be his last point of the match. And that rather summed it up. Federer's absolute best was just about good enough to stick with Djokovic. But the moment there was any let-up, the Serb was ruthless and is now in his sixth final here. His opponent will either be Milos Raonic or Andy Murray, who play tomorrow night, probably for the rights to be cannon fodder against the irresistible Djokovic. And finally in golf, Scotland's Paul Laurie leads into the third round of the commercial Ben Qatar Masters. Twice a winner in Doha, the Scot is now 11 under par and a one-stroke clear of Nicholas Colsatz. Nick Dye reports. Laurie first won in Qatar ahead of his Carnoustie success. He then won again in 2012, helping to earn his place in the Ryder Cup team. So he has great memories of the course and he's certainly always shown his proficiency at playing in the wind. Colsar came through the afternoon with a fine back nine for ten under par, feeling he's getting back to the form which won him a Ryder Cup spot. One of the pre-event favourites, Sergio Garcia, has moved to prominence at eight under with a 66, while the first round leader Louis Oosthuizen and defending champion Brandon Grace both remain in the hunt. That's the end of our sport. Stay tuned to Channel Africa and back to Lulu Gabu. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka.
Nacional. Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour, Africa is set to be making progress in women empowerment and the trial of former Ivorian president gets underway. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today and for the week. From myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Luanda Maome, technical producer Adrian Kenny and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa or send an SMS on 277 969 Now taking us to the top of the hour for the news and another... Well, that's it for... <laughs> today um, is uh, Ndando with a track titled Njalo.